Hey, this is L.A. Hey, this is Danny. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Sometime during our chat, well. my guest today, good, 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 good. the writer Daniel sure Malley Orberg. Daniel and I got on the subject of religion and God and growing up in the church and how the Bible, if you think about it, is full of stories of transition, which is something that Daniel can relate to because Daniel is trans and Daniel just recently went through a gender transition. So that talk prompted a question. Which of those Bible figures and Bible stories you wrote about would have the easiest transition? And which would have the hardest? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have no idea. I have no idea. I kind of love that, and I'm also kind of horrified by it. Daniel uh, writes the Dear Prudence I, advice column for Slate. Maybe Elijah, just because he's out there in the wilderness for 20 years. Okay. I think... Oh, you, yeah. Tell me what you think, by uh, well, all means. Give me your theory. Oh, I think Jesus wanted to transition as soon as he left the tomb. Listen, Jesus already transitioned from uh, the word of God, you know, yeah, passing over the waters to flesh. Like he's already, yeah, he's yeah. already done one. Throw another one in there. Like I would have loved for Jesus to have left the tomb on the third day, lip syncing for their life and telling you about the new journey they're on. I, I, like all of that. It's just like, oh, I don't imagine. Know if I love you for this or if I'm absolutely like, <laughs> this is too much. <laughs> You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and my guest today is Daniel Mallory Orberg, the sage, always clear-headed and wise, Dear Prudence advice columnist. Daniel helps readers figure out if their partner is cheating, if their friend is being selfish, how to navigate workplace politics, and if that partner will keep on cheating in the future. By the way, the answers to those questions are yes, yes, don't microwave your fish, and GTFO. Now, Daniel is out with a new book, not of advice, but a book all about himself. It's a memoir of personal essays called Something That May Shock and Discredit You. This book deals a lot with Daniel's transition from Mallory Ortberg to Daniel. In our chat, we'll talk more about his relationship with faith, the power and fear of self-knowledge and owning who you are, and why a gender transition can sometimes feel like sharing french fries. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my chat with the writer and all-around good person, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. I'm so excited to talk with you today, and I realized as soon as I picked up your book last week and began reading that I really had no idea what to expect with your book, Mm -hmm. and I had no idea what to expect of you, Mm. which was weird because I've been reading you for years, but what I know you the most from is your slate column, Dear Prudence. And in that right. column, you're, you're in service of other people and their stories. And this was the first book of essays slash memoir where I picked it up and said, they're actually an open book for me. Yeah, A total yeah. open book. Nobody, like, I'm not going to have to pause and be like, you need to stop talking to your mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude, like, what has it been like to be someone who has a day job in which you talk a lot about other people Mm-hmm. but also to make this kind of book where you talk a lot about yourself. I mean, it's fabulous. It is one of the best day jobs a writer can have um, yeah. because it's the kind of writing that it is impossible to get writer's block about. You are presented with a very specific prompt mm. um, and told you have you know 10 or 15 minutes to address it, and then you move on. <laughs> so it, it doesn't use up the same kind of mental and emotional energy of thinking, you know, what stories do I want to tell about my own life? Yeah, yeah. 
The book, it is called Something That May Shock and Discredit You. What's that title about? So it actually comes from a scene from an old episode of The Simpsons when Lionel Hutz, who's this recurring character who's voiced by the great Phil Hartman, um, and he's always very, like, sweaty and panicked and nervous and underprepared and hoping that nobody picks up on any of that. Um, he's trying to discredit a witness who has a photographic memory. And, and he asks that person, what, you know, well, I, is that what you think? Like, when he says correctly what kind of tie he's wearing, he says, is that what you think? Well, if that's what you think, then I've got something to tell you, something that may shock and discredit you. And that is that I'm not wearing a tie at all. And during that little monologue, he's just <laughs> clearly, like, turned around and, like, grabbing at his necktie trying to rip it off and it's total <laughs> theater it's totally obvious what's happening in that moment but in that moment it felt like there was so much about you know masks coming off layers coming off falling apart being unable to maintain a particular um set of assumptions or or, or set of beliefs that you hope other people will jump on board with and so that that was pretty early in the writing process i, I landed on that title i like that what is the elevator pitch for the book and, and you know what's inside of it for me i kind of define it as like a book where you unpack the messiness and the questions that are ever present in a transition. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think it's um particularly telescoped on a roughly two year period of my life. Um, but but then within that two year period, there's a lot of different moments where um, it sort of telescopes back out. I think I might have used the word telescope to both mean like dialed in and dialed out. That's fine. It's okay. I like um, it. Uh, to look at various points throughout my life and to try to understand things um, in a different or more complicated way as a result of, of, of that transition. So memoir is is perhaps slightly generous because it's certainly not a like a walk through my youth, my adolescence, my adulthood, now looking towards the future. Um, but it is an attempt to, to revisit some of the most sort of formative characters that have shaped my life and what it meant to say, I think I might want to reshape my life now. Yeah. How do I look back on those characters? Yeah. I got to say, I love how the story of your transition in this book really bucked some of the tropes that we see around transition in popular culture. I think that there is this narrative that the trans person always knew in their heart of hearts. And it was a, slow, a strong, loud message from on high. There were never any doubts. This was the right path. But you write early on in the book, like all of the reasons that you told yourself as to why transitioning would be a bad idea. Like you tried to talk yourself out of it for a while. I think almost every trans person I've ever met has a really powerful series of um ideas and thoughts and processes that they've been through. Like, I think that complicated narrative is totally present with yeah. all trans people that I've talked to. Okay. But I think, as you say, oftentimes when the time comes to like, okay, you have 30 seconds to like get that across on CBS, that story does get flattened. And again, that doesn't mean that certainty is a problem um, or yeah. that anyone who experiences an immediate conscious sense of the need to transition is somehow more simple or less complicated of a person, simply that, as you say, the appetite for simplicity among cis people is, I think, quite strong. Um, and so Why is the, that? Um, I think sometimes it's a failure to employ the imagination. Uh, yeah. It kind of stops at, well, why would you want to change something that is like the water that we swim around in. And so there's just a desire to like reassure me that this isn't going to happen to me someday, that gender categories are uh, normally going to be really fixed, really simple, really easy, really obvious. Um, reassure me that I'm not ever going to end up like you. 
I, wow. I, I think I think that's part of it. Like, make it really clear to me that I would know if I were like you. And because I know I'm not like you, I'm safe. I get to be cis forever. Well, it feels very much the same way in which cis people take someone's transition and make it all about themselves. It's the same way that, like, straight people make someone they know coming out all about them. Mm-hmm. I think it's that's always, tr- why didn't you tell me earlier? Or, oh, my God, this changes everything for me, you know? Mm-hmm. We can't, yeah. They can't help but do that. Yeah, and certainly I know that there's often a really well-intended desire to connect or I wish I'd known so I could have been helpful to you. But yeah, I think there is often a sense of why would you withhold this information from me? And again, it it buys into this idea of you know self-knowledge is something you can just um, arrive at. And what I love about how you write it in the book is that at its start, it wasn't knowledge, it was a question. Right. You write about when the first inkling of any of this arose – there was just this little voice in your head that kind of whispered to you, hey, what if you were a dude? <laughs> sort of, yeah. And and of course, like appended with the sort of, like, I, I, yeah, I think I first experienced it the way I've sometimes seen like formerly religious people talk about doubt um, as really? a like, deconversion narrative. Like, I think I first experienced transition as doubts about my cisness. Huh. What did that sound like? What did that voice sound like at first? Um, it, it certainly felt like, the floor falling out. It certainly felt shocking and discrediting. It certainly felt like I was in a in the movie Deep Impact and I was the president and someone just handed me a telegram saying like the asteroid is on <laughs> collision course with Earth. Like it just wow. felt like, how can this be? Yeah. Um, or yeah, like in Titanic, just like, how could we have hit an iceberg? We're the ship that can't hit icebergs. Yes. And like that trepidation is yeah. a constant throughout the book. And it's a constant even after you've decided to start taking steps towards transition, you yeah. have this wonderful analogy, metaphor, simile. I always forget which word exactly. Me but too. <laughs> you do this thing where you compare beginning testosterone treatment to being the person to order fries for the table. I mean, certainly, like, I know lots of people have talked about the group dynamics of ordering fries. But yeah, oftentimes in group dynamics, there's a sort of like, I don't want to be the only person who eats fries. You know, who's going to go in on this with me? So I'm not the only one sticking my neck out. And it makes Um, you like whisper. Like, you'd be like, so would y'all, if I got, could I, could I maybe get... But fries? Right. Fries? Do you have a half order of fries? Can we all split this? Can you bring us each just like a fry from somebody else's table that you were going to throw away? Exactly. And I think sometimes, at least among some of my friends who have also like teeter-tottered towards uh, hormonal transition, there's that sort of question of like, what's the smallest amount you can legally give me? And can you cut that in half? And yeah. I'm just taking a tiny bit. I'm just having one of your fries. I'm not actually ordering any of yeah. my own fries. Could my neighbor have a fry first and I see what happens to them and then maybe talk about possibly trying half a fry tomorrow? We which makes so much sense to me, of course, especially because there's just so much trepidation and uncertainty and there's a lot of uh, fear bound up in it and anxiety that what if I take a step and I find myself totally exposed and vulnerable and, and I have nowhere to run to. So I don't want to um, downplay that. But yeah, it, it very much uh, felt reminiscent of like, OK, if three other people get fries, we're good. We're safe. We can yes. split the fries. All right. Time for a break. When we come back, Daniel explains his theory that everyone in the Bible is actually trans. We break it down and take it to church. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chobani Oat, made to taste just like milk. It's creamy, frothy, and great with coffee and cookies, but without the dairy, because it's not milk. It's almost milk. New Chobani Oat. On a secret military recording, a sound so haunting 
one scientist believed it could change the world. My mind was racing as I listened to this, and I thought, this, this is the way. Join NPR's Invisibilia for the first episode of our new season. One of the things that really blew me away was when you're listing all the reasons that you might not want to transition, one of them was you thinking that your transition would be an act of impoliteness toward women. I had never considered that. And then when you lay it out, I said, oh, I guess that makes sense. Well, and I I think that was something that I often found hard to explain um, to the cis women in my life was like, I, I didn't know how to put across like, I have so much solidarity with you. I have yeah. so much compassion for the similar experiences we've had at times. This isn't something I'm doing as a rejection of you or your struggles or your values or anything like that. Um, and and I didn't even often receive that as a response. I was just so worried. I, I was worried it would be like, you know, you go out with all your friends one night and then you like bail early and you're like, you texting them from a cab, like, sorry, I'm already on sorry, my way home. home. I was worried, like, is it rude? Did I just ditch my friends at the club? No, yeah. by the way, is the answer to that. Exactly. Not at all. Transition does not harm women. Uh, yeah. Transition and increased bodily autonomy and, and self-determination are really, really good things. And they're super consistent with and stand in solidarity with all of the kind of main points of feminism. I, like, I, And just seeing it be possible for all kinds of trans people to be like, yes, I still have all these old friends. I still see all these people. I am in no way abandoning anyone. And it was just like, oh, right. That's the kind of fear that you gin up when you're alone in your room trying to talk yourself out of something. Yes. And so many of these fears that you have alone in your room, you bring them to life so clearly and vividly. So it's not just you writing, I was worried about how this would be perceived. It's you saying things like you kept waiting for a, quote, exit interview with womanhood. I think, too, one of the things that I had felt very strongly was one of the ways that I kind of think I I made it through a large chunk of my life living as a woman was this idea that, like, I will take my cues from other people. And if I dress like Joan from Mad Men, other people seem happy. They seem to think I look well-dressed. They seem to like the way that my body looks. That means my, like, body, my gender are kind of, like, held in public property. And so thinking about what if I made that decision, you know, I'm the one who lives in this body. I'm the one whose opinions count the most. Yeah. And there's no secret committee watching you every day asking if how you present to the world is good mm-hmm. for the gender. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist. Everyone's pretty busy themselves. Like, yes. yeah. <laughs> people are going with their lives. Yeah. yeah. So, um, do you have the book with you? I don't. Isn't that embarrassing? It's okay. I kind of want to read. Can I just read out loud chapter 15? I would love that. Sorry, I, I never. I hate to be the guy reading someone else's book out loud. But. No, but it's fantastic. You have such a wonderful and deep and resonant voice. It's very oh, like transition goodness. goal. So you know, <laughs> that's so sweet of you. <laughs> All right, chapter fifteen is called, and his name shall be called something hard to remember. And you are talking about the uh, story in the Bible in which Jacob wrestles with an angel all night and has his name changed to Israel. You begin the chapter by quoting Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight, And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. 
And they said to him, it's not that we don't like the name Israel. It's just that we've always called you Jacob. We're so used to it. And he said to them, I do know that you've always called me by that name before. I hadn't forgotten. I've been used to it too. (laughs) And I really appreciate your bearing with me. And they said, well, first things first, you should definitely know that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And again, he said, of course, I figured that. And some of the others said Israel some of the time and Jacob some of the time, exclaiming, oh, my God, oh, my God, Israel, sorry. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry after each actinal Jacob, such that each time was more noticeable than the time before. And Israel found himself saying, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Don't feel bad. I didn't even notice. Jacob is fine. I honestly always like Jacob better. Anyways. As someone who has two phases of my life, the phase where I grew up in a very religious, charismatic Pentecostal church and was Mm -hmm. in the closet and to where I am now, out of the closet, not going to church, Mm -hmm. it felt like for me, part of coming out was leaving the church and the Bible and those stories behind. And I love how your book is saying, I can be whoever I am am mm. and I don't have to leave that behind. And it's so complicated too as you say like there's ways in which I'll feel very much like I also don't go to church I'm also not a Christian but I always want to feel like there's room for me like I, you, you didn't fire me I quit you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think there's always value in thinking about the stories that we grew up with and finding different ways to look at them and seeing ourselves in them and so I also feel that real push and pull when it comes yeah. to these stories and the stories of my childhood, um, which is sometimes I feel like I'm doing meaningful processing work here. I'm writing myself into this narrative. And other times I feel like, no, I'm just still chasing that dream of approval and acceptance from the heterosexual family unit and like Christian buy-in. And so I, I can sometimes feel cynical about it. I sometimes feel optimistic about it. I sometimes feel all manner of different things. Yeah. What is the message you want readers to get when they read you comparing this Old Testament story to transitioning? What parallels do you want them to draw between these two stories? I want them to know that literally everyone in the Bible is trans and that it's just time to deal with it. Everyone, everyone in the Bible is trans. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to be the one to be able to break that news on the air. I love it. And, you know, it's it's funny, I have a question later on in here basically saying that after I read the Jacob and Esau parallel and began to think about it, it's like, wait, most of the plot lines in the Bible are stories of transition, living a life before your calling, having a calling, coming to accept it, and then finding new ways to live out a new life with a new mission. Right. And and there's consistency and coherency, but there's also rupture. There's also dramatic change. Um, some things get carried along into the new existence. Some things don't. As you say, there's very much that sense of vocation. And there's the idea both of being chosen by God for this vocation, but then there's also the moment of acceptance, whether you're talking about, you know, Gideon and, and the sheep's wool or Mary and the Magnificat. Um, there's yeah. a moment where there's equal participation on the side of God, the creative, energizing, activating, calling force, and the human, the the person who does the work on the ground. Those two forces have to both consent to one another. You know, I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna go and out also, and be alive. <laughs> yeah, and also like the audacity to challenge someone who says, "No, my name is Israel." The audacity mm. to challenge your truth, which is divine. That's what I see in this story. Like, yeah, you could say to Israel, I'm going to call you Jacob still. But, oh, my God, you idiot. God named them Israel. God gave them this gift. It's a blessing. You should start a church. I tell you what. <laughs> I don't know if you've had enough, like, 
processing healing downtime, but like even if it was just like uh, some inspirational monologues once a month yeah. or something. All right, time for another break. Coming up, what Bruce Springsteen, Meatloaf, and Ryan Atwood from the OC have in common. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Verbo. Finding the perfect vacation home for the whole family is hard. You start off looking for a beach house big enough for six and wind up watching videos of surfing dogs. Verbo's got you covered, matching you to the perfect place to stay for your family getaway every time. Download the Verbo app, that's B-R-B-O, and put an end to frustrating vacation searches. Discover everything from condos and cabins to villas and castles. Let Verbo find a home that matches your family. Hi, I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and I am the new host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. I am so excited because we are working on a bunch of new, amazing episodes. We're exploring big ideas about reinvention, making amends, and the psychological effects of climate change. Our first show drops March 13th. Please join me. So besides doing that lovely work of unpacking theology and in this really interesting, vivid way, you also do a lot of great work in these artifacts of recent popular culture. And there's this underlying theory you have about a lot of iconic characters and movies and TV shows uh, that there are a bunch of like secret lesbians hidden <laughs> in plot points and plot lines right in front of us. Break this down for me. I love it so. Yeah, so that was actually something that I did before I was thinking consciously of myself as a trans person. And so it was mm. very tongue-in-cheek. It's very jokey. But, like, I, I think it started with Ryan Atwood from The O.C. And I had done just, like, a one-off thing about, like, why he's a lesbian. Um, <laughs> why is he a lesbian? There's, I mean, there's certainly lots in common, right? Like, it's not a secret that, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Meatloaf are kind of lesbian icons. And <laughs> so there's a history... That already exists of like playing across gender lines and drawing inspiration from various sources and recognizing ways in which like, you know, maleness looks like butchness filtered through a, a sieve. Uh, in what way am I more like Ryan Atwood or in what ways am I more like a lesbian? Is that what this is for me? Um, <laughs> and so a lot of it was just like maybe if I can figure out who Ryan Atwood is, I can figure out why I associate this straight guy with something that I think is queer about me. Yeah. Chapter 12 is titled, Ducky from Pretty in Pink is also a beautiful lesbian, and I can prove it with the intensity of my feelings. Oh, I love it. So there is this one graph where you basically lay out the facts about why Ducky's a lesbian, and you say, listen, having that one pompadour haircut with a forehead curl, relentless and furiously pining for your best friend, wearing circular sunglasses, hanging out at someone else's job because you have nowhere else better to be, and being one of the poorest kids in school aren't necessary preconditions for lesbianism, but, like, add them all up, baby, and you've got a stew going. <laughs> it's so good. Thank you. It's very silly. It's very, very silly. Yes. What are you hoping to convey in these stories of latent lesbianism all in the culture today? You know, an increased sense of possibility, an yeah. increased sense of identification, solidarity, possibility across various lines, a certain sense of being able to read back into something that was presented to you as like normative and straight um, and being able to open that up, a certain sense of um, 
the pleasure of naming things, which I talk a little bit more about towards the end of the book when I get into like the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis and how the first task in that story that humans are given is is to become creative, is to name things. And then the idea that giving something a name is good work. And so I think part of what I love about that for queer and for trans people is the idea of um, establishing names and saying, I have a name for this, I have a name for me, is remarkable and beautiful work to get to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to go back to that early, those early moments, Mm -hmm. realizing that you were going to need to begin the transition. Mm -hmm. It goes from a question to the same question louder and the same question and you can't shake it. And then you end up having this moment where you're trying to parallel park unsuccessfully and like, that's the thing. (laughs) Can you tell us that story and why a parallel park job gone wrong was like the thing? Yeah. Yeah. So the chapter that you're referring to, I think, is called If You Can't Parallel Park, You Have to Get a Sex Change. Um, and I think it had to do with this, I gotta get a sex change. I think I think it had to do with this like double decker sense of not only was I failing to be a woman adequately, I was now already failing at being any version of a guy. So there was this sense of like, oh, I'm both up all at once. <laughs> Well, like in this scene, which you just lay out in painstaking detail, you're trying to parallel park, trying to parallel park, can't do it. And this really nice guy, mm-hmm. like in his 50s, is he's, he's like watching you not do this park job well. Yeah. And it's like he's not even being mean and sexist, just like literally <laughs> without realizing how important it is to me. He's watching me fail at eight different things at once. And he's trying to help, which he makes like it offers to help. Right. So much worse. Oh, man. It's kind of this like... What do you think your fears about that man, that stranger, who really had no control over your life, what do those fears say about what you were dealing with in terms of transition? I think my fears at the time were particularly located in the idea that by transitioning, I would be removing myself from the like support and emotional intimacy of women. And right. I would be thrown into a world where, at best... Men um, watch you parallel park bad. Men would watch me parallel park and be like, get it together, toughen up. And it was just like, <laughs> well, I don't want to transition because I want to, like, achieve all these, like, uh, hyper-masculine, like, straight guy ideas of, like, now I'm going to care about sports and not want to talk about my feelings. And so I think that was my real fear that the response from the world would be like, okay, you can do this, but you have to, like, just deal with the fact that, like... All your friends are just going to be like, don't talk about your feelings anymore and just shut up. And like that that fear that I would lose something that was in fact really important to me and be asked to sign up for something that was like, no, that's not the part I want. I just want to look like a cartoon pilot. (laughs) So there's a chapter about 80s classic rock and how that genre of music really worked for you as someone <laughs> figuring gender out because you had this detachment from your body in your youth. And you say that what you loved about that classic rock was that it was romanticism and romance detached from like physical sensuality. Like, <laughs> yeah, you it was very yourself, yeah. stagey, very showy. And by the way, it's very generous of you to call it classic rock. I think that's the chapter where I mostly talk about Alana Miles' Black Velvet. Hey, that's a classic. Come I mean, on. It's a fantastic song. It is an amazing <laughs> song. But yeah, it was just very like, I think, and I don't think this is exclusive to trans people, although I do think trans people often do it, especially as young people. You kind of look around for like 
a clue, like, do other people feel this way? What do other people do about the issue of being, like, a body and a person? And and, yeah. and you kind of look for, like, oh, I can just buy that outfit off the mannequin. Great. That's my thing. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm going to do that. I was just like, okay, adult women, you know, wear big flowy poets shirts and then, like, all leather coveralls. And they stand on a porch singing about how, like, no men better come near me because I'm too sad about Elvis to have sex with them. And I was like, that makes sense. That makes <laughs> a lot it. of sense to me. I can do that. That is my sexuality. Yep. <laughs> That's being a woman. That's sexy. I'm in. Bam. Bam. What is the hardest part about, and I wonder if even this is the right way to phrase the question, mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've grown so much and come so far in your journey, which you talk about in the book, but like, are there ever parts of that that you find hard to forgive? Parts of like... Parts of your past, parts of how you conceptualize how to be a human, parts of how you were mean to yourself before you figured yourself out. Do you find those older versions of you hard to forgive sometimes for not being there for you? I, I, I think a lot of times we all have to contend with that. I think one of the things that I actually have felt a lot of peace and freedom around is like, what if I regret something? The worst thing would be to do something and then experience regret. So the best thing to do is nothing. And once I started taking action and making choices, I realized like the worst thing for me is actually to let the fear of possible future regret keep me from trying anything. Yeah. And once I tried things, I realized like, well, I can tweak that. I can stop that if I don't like it. I can bear my goals in mind here. I can move forward. And like, if I f- a little, I f- a little. Like, that's life. I'm out here. Like, I'm. You know, yeah. somebody put me in. Put me in the game. Exactly. Thanks again to my guest, author and writer Daniel Mallory Ortberg. His new book is called Something That May Shock and Discredit You. You can read Daniel's column, Dear Prudence, over at Slate.com. It is a very good advice column. All right, listeners, don't forget we're back this Friday with another wrap on the news of the week. If you've heard those Friday shows, you know that we end those episodes by hearing from you sharing the best parts of your week with me and all of our listeners. You can be in that montage, record the sound of your voice onto your cell phone, then send that voice file to me. Email it to samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Okay, that's it for now. Till Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. <laughs> 